Welcome to the Functional Breeding Podcast. I'm Jessica Heckman, and I'm here interviewing folks about how to breed dogs for function and for health, behavioral and physical. This podcast is brought to you by the Functional Dog Collaborative, an organization founded to support the ethical breeding of healthy, behaviorally sound dogs. The FDC's goals include providing educational, social, and technical resources to breeders of both purebred and mixed breed dogs. You can find out more at functionalbreeding.org or at the Functional Breeding Facebook group, which we work hard to keep friendly and inclusive. I hope you have fun and learn something. Hi, friends. This week, I'm talking to doctors Claire Wade and Sophie Liu about their paper on genetic diversity in the Doberman breed. Dr. Claire Wade is the Chair of Computational Biology and Animal Genetics at the University of Sydney, where she studies canine behavioral genetics. Dr. Sophie Liu is a veterinarian specializing in behavior, and she is also the founder of the Doberman Diversity Project, about which she's spoken previously on this podcast. Both of them are passionate about dogs, not just as part of their careers, but as part of their lives. They join me to talk through the findings in their paper, which sheds some light on the complicated story of health and genetic diversity in Dobermans. All right. Well, Claire and Sophie, welcome to the Functional Breeding Podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thanks. It's great to be chatting with you both. I'm, I'm so pleased to have both of you here. Um, so I always start out by asking people to tell us a little bit about their dogs, Um Claire, since you're at the top of my screen, why don't you start? What what dogs do you live with? I live with two Nova Scotia duck tolling retrievers. Um, I have Sage, who is five, and I have Phoenix, who is two. And uh, we uh, do lots of things together. We do uh, confirmation obedience and also competitive retrieving with each other. And uh, they are absolute goofballs and I love them to bits. Uh, yeah we have lots of fun together yeah I always love seeing uh dog researchers who are also very into their dogs and part of the dog world um and then Sophie why don't you tell us about your dogs I have three dogs I have two Dobermans one is um almost seven years old and one is her daughter who is my current sports prospect um that we are we're actively training for Schutzend until she got injured. So we'll put that on the back burner for a couple months. And then we also have a Formosan mountain dog. So a rescue from Taiwan. And she is a very interesting dog that constantly explains to me the difference between our common domestic dogs and village dogs. So it's been great. Yeah, I was going to say that is a that is a very different kind of dog for you. Very. But it's really interesting to see the similarities and differences. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So we are here to talk about the paper that you two wrote together, Comprehensive Analysis of Geographic and Breed Purpose Influences on Genetic Diversity and Inherited Disease Risk in the Doberman Dog Breed. Um so why don't we start out maybe by talking about what the health risks are in the Doberman breed? Sophie and I did a podcast about this a while back, which people could go review. So we don't need to get too much into detail. But why did uh, why was a paper like this useful? Why don't we start with Sophie and then we'll and then Claire can chime in? 
Sure. So basically, um, Dobermans as a breed carry a really high risk of diseases, and these diseases have pretty significant morbidity and mortality, meaning they cause quite a bit of decrease in quality of life, and um, they, they are quite fatal. So the some of the tops are cancers, but really dilated cardiomyopathy or DCM. Um, really high prevalence in the breed, over 50% by the most recent study. And there is Doberman hepatitis, which um, is a disease of the liver and that can cause really high morbidity and mortality. And um, because of all of these reasons, Dobermans are suspected to have quite low longevity. And um, a lot of people have been suspecting this, but it wasn't until recently, and Claire can dig into all of this, um, that we really have sort of shown that longevity has definitely taken a pretty serious hit. So because this breed is such an interesting background with such high levels of diseases, we and I felt it was really important to really have some data behind this um, and hopefully spark some conversations because, you know, it's it doesn't seem to be sustainable. Claire, do you have anything to add to that? Um, well, my first uh, interaction with the project was that Sophie wrote to me and said that she had this amazing data resource and being a data nerd, um, I thought it was an opportunity to perhaps look at some things that interested me from a population genetic point of view in dogs. Um, yeah, so those were my uh, motivations. I had heard some things about the longevity in the breed and um, their risk of uh, cardiovascular disease, cancer, um, cervical spondylopathy and then I hadn't heard of the hepatitis until um, recently but yes. So what um what kinds of research have you been doing on dogs? Like what are some of your other what are some of your other projects just to help people uh, sort of piece this in? So I, I didn't do... prepare you for that question. No. <laughs> um so um my original interaction with dog genomics began actually here in Australia where we did a uh, inherited disease survey for the uh, canine council in Queensland when I lived in Queensland and then um, I moved to the United States to to learn more about the new field of genomics and while I was there I worked on the canine genome project and I did the population genetics the marker discovery uh, for the canine genome projects in 2005. So that was the CanFam 2. Um, and then after that, uh, we did some early, um, I helped to design the first canine genotyping arrays for Illumina. And um, we used those to do some um, trait mapping in the dog. And we did, uh, we were, uh, at the Broad Institute, along with Eleanor Carlson and Lee Shuston, Lynn Bladtoe, 
And um, let me just interrupt for a second to unpack what trait mapping means, because not everyone oh, may know sorry. that. So what's your, that's okay. So what Claire's talking about there is the idea that there's a trait of interest. In this case, it would be DCM maybe, or some of the other traits that Sophie listed, and then trying to find the location in the DNA where there's something going on that seems to have some relationship to the trait. Yeah, so in those days, we were mainly working with simple simple inherited recessive traits, well, although some of them were dominant. Um, and we developed a, uh, a few tests for this and that. And then since coming to Australia, I've worked a lot with complex traits. So over the past several years, I've been working a lot with uh, livestock herding dog behaviour, which I've not published yet, um, but also uh, deafness in Dalmatians and a few other bits and pieces that come my way. I'm currently working on a few inherited disorders in breeds. Um, but yeah, I, I'm very interested in the genetics of behaviour. And one of the big things I'm working on, I just got a big grant for actually, is for the genomics of seasonality in, in dogs. So um, people may or may not know that wild dogs can only breed in the winter. Uh, whereas our domestic dogs can, of course, breed any time of the year, for the most part, except if they're a Bazenji. And, um, yeah, trying to find the reason for that, and we think we found something. So that's what we're working on at the moment. Cool. We're just trying to get the functional work happening. I will look forward to reading about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then Claire mentioned the the project with a lot of data. So maybe, Sophie, you could fill people in who didn't listen to the previous podcast episode about the Doberman Diversity Project. Where did all this data come from? Sure. Yeah. So we started the project knowing that um, really to get a good understanding of the breed, we really had to make it as global and as large as possible. So we partnered with Embark at the time to use their swab and their use of the Illumina chip to get results on as many Dobermans as possible. So uh, there's, there's sort of a, a split, I guess, between dogs of different lines and across different countries, which is really common in a lot of the working breeds like field versus bench, I think is the phrasing <laughs> and across, you know, Europe and America or North America. So we had an international team of volunteers and just like breed enthusiasts who would help us spread the word so that we could get samples from dogs. Um, primarily in Germany, we got a lot of dogs and then in various other European countries, we had some South American volunteers, so we had some Argentinian and Brazilian dogs, and then we had quite a bit of volunteers in North America and Canada to help us get some dogs. So it was a really international global effort to get as many dogs as we could to get as clear of a picture. And you guys can explain better than me why we need so much data and more is better. So um, it was a several years long process to organize that and, and get all the data that we needed. And once we reached a, a good number, I think it was over 3000 that it felt like we had something that was useful for people like Claire to take. And I'm just so grateful that Claire responded to my email because 
you know, you guys are such a few and a far in between group of experts. And it's actually pretty amazing to have both of you in the same room, virtual room here. <laughs> because there's so few dog geneticists out there. And I, I think even fewer who really have like a individual true passion to really help the rest of us who love these dogs, have these dogs, can see problems, but don't really know how or where to take it. So um, that's how we got all of the data. And then I was like, okay, we need to give this to someone like Claire or Jessica, whoever wants to work with it. Someone take our baby. <laughs> and what were you, what were you hoping to get out of it, Sophie? What, what were you hoping Claire would give you? Well, I have my personal biases. Um, but, you know, as as people who really love and believe in science, right, our job is just to see what's, I guess, quote unquote, true or as true as we can know. And then once we have evidence, then, you know, we can help people make good decisions. But really, my issue is that I don't think we have enough good evidence in veterinary medicine, in dog behavior training. We just don't have a lot of really good, great evidence. And I think that that's one of the problems, but that's just like my personal bias is I really am always like, show me the evidence, show me the facts before so, you make a decision. So you'd say maybe, correct me if I'm wrong in sort of pulling it together like this, but you'd say that we have a breed where we have evidence that there is an elevated risk of health problems, um, decreased longevity, and you're trying to figure out if there's some um, answer in the genetics to point us in the direction of, of where to go to try to start fixing that. I mean, obviously, that's a, a huge mm -hmm. next step to try to figure out what to do, but you were hoping to have some answers about like what's going on and maybe even some pointers into, into what the next steps might be. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, and to kind of like pull that together even more, like as clinical veterinarians, we are taught to treat diseases, but we don't actually have very good disease prevention strategies when it comes to purebred dogs and, and the certain diseases that we know are sort of almost like pathognomic to the breed, right? Like, you say it, I was talking to someone about this, but like you say a disease and you just, you know what breed you're talking about, like Fanconi syndrome, it's Basenji's. Um, lymphoma, you're thinking of golden retrievers, Bernese Mountain Dogs, whatever. Osteosarcoma, you think of Rottweilers, right? So we, we have these like pathognomonic disease breed associations and we are taught how to treat them. And oftentimes we don't have great treatments for these really serious diseases, but we don't have any training really in disease prevention other than this nefarious concept of better breeding. And I'm, I'm, I just wanted to make this project so that we could have some evidence to really start clarifying, defining what that means, and then next steps from there, what to yeah. do. And what I love about the pair of you is that, so Sophie is sort of the, has the more clinical, practical approach because she's the veterinarian. Um, and then Claire is the, the pure scientist. So Claire, would you say that your goals, I mean, you, you two had certainly related and similar goals, but would you say that your goals for this project, you know, was there more that you would have to say about what your specific goals were? Um, my general philosophy around the work that I do is I want to see improvements in welfare 
I want to see, I want to leave the world a better place than my family. And for me, um, I, I like to, I'm like Sophie, I want to see, I, I don't want to just take something as truth because someone told me it was that way. I want to test it. And then so for me, you know, I wanted to see, like through my genomics life, I had developed certain uh, points of view based on observations I'd made in the genome-based data. Um, and um, I guess the first thing for me was to to understand, you know, is the are the arrays really telling us the whole story? Because arrays are designed in a particular way so that they're useful across many different breeds of dogs. And it's not really possible for a dog to be heterozygous at every marker on an array, no matter what you do, because uh, a lot of the markers are um, from, from variants that have arisen in uh, certain families of dogs since the breed separated. So it's not possible for other dogs to be polymorphic or have variation at a marker that only exists because it's a new mutation that right, arose right. since the breed split. And a lot of the markers on the array are a bit like that. And that's why you're always going to see 30% of the markers being homozygous just because of the the phylogeny of dogs, if you like. So um, I was interested to know, one of the things I've really uh, struggled with in my career has been understanding what does it mean, What at what point are you heterozygous? Because, you know, if you have a stretch of homozygosity and then there are new variants there, you know, are you homozygous or are you heterozygous? And these are all like, things that when we're doing an analysis like we've done with these arrays, we kind of have to draw a line and say, okay, we'll accept that a certain percentage of the markers are going to be polymorphic. We'll still call that homozygous. And at the end of the day, um, the other thing I've struggled with is that um, in genomics, nature tries so darned hard to keep the exons of genes, which are the parts that make the protein coding parts of the genes, as as intact and the same as they can. So if, usually if you introduce variation there, it causes a problem. And so when you look at a human versus a mouse versus a dog, those bits of the genome like are really, 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 really stable. And so I really struggle <laughs> with this whole, I always struggle with the whole heterozygosity, homozygosity, good bad moralistic argument because it really depends like everything depends on where is it <laughs> where is that variant is it somewhere that matters or is it somewhere that doesn't matter and so um you know if you if you've got a homozygous stretch but there's a one marker in a disease causing gene then you then it matters right that you're a carrier for that disease causing uh, variant and we've seen that in um, some of the, the things that the diseases that we've mapped here have been in regions that looked homozygous. 
So, you know, I struggle with all that stuff. That's all like beyond, <laughs> beyond. Yeah. So, but, no. but that's the sort of thing that was interesting <laughs> me in this project is to have a bit of a deeper dive into those sort of questions and to ask what's going on yeah. in those places. I know exactly what you're talking about. I've been there. I am debating, I'm guessing 50% of the audience will be with us at this point. So I'm going to, I'm going to unpack that again a little bit that, so basically what the data that Sophie's project collected was, um, was she said the aluminum microarray chip. So that is markers. So they're basically points across the DNA, um, where they, you can look and see, you know, is it ACT or G? Although at any point, it's probably only going to be one of two. Um, but there's big gaps in between those is what Claire's talking about. And so, and we also have the problem of when people developed these chips. So as I said, there's gaps. There's a lot of places where there's variation in the DNA in between those markers. And when people developed those chips, they did them by looking at purebred dogs and so, as Claire says, part of the problem is that, you know, if you look at one breed and you find where things are always the same or where there's some variation and you use that, and then you apply it to another breed, well, the places where there's variation is going to be different in the other breed. And so how much can you trust these spots that have been chosen, which were supposed to be, you know, very informative for sort of any dog that you look at, but of course are not in reality, right, Claire? There's like... There's these bits where it's like, well, this, you know, they sort of use specific breeds and how. Well, 70% of them are. But I mean, it's going to be true of any markers that you pick anywhere. I mean, right. it's just. I mean, there's just no the nature. Way. And I'm not criticizing. It's just the nature of the evolution uh, that and has so, occurred since uh, right. dogs were, were became dogs. <laughs> and so if you find this chunk where you know you're looking at we're looking at dobermans and so if we find this chunk where everything appears to be the same in all the dogs that we look at is that because it's a real problem that you know this is where they've all been fixed for risk for dcm or is it that there's actually a lot of variation in there but we're not seeing it because this chunk was developed from from other breeds or mutts or something that's really different from dobermans did i summarize that okay yeah essentially so yeah so so that was one of the questions i was interested in is how well do our predictions of inbreeding levels from arrays mm. reflect what's happening underneath in the intervening mm -hmm. dna that was one question i had and then the other thing i had i that had bothered me a long time is that there seems to be like a bit of a dogma, pardon the pun, that um, show dogs are like inbred, most inbred, and that other types of dogs are not. And is that true or is that false? Or is that the problem? Is it that confirmation bred dogs or registered dogs bred for confirmation? Is that the problem? Or are there other problems? Like what, what's causing, where is it coming from? Where are these things coming from? Where are they located in the population? And so the wonderful thing about Sophie's data uh, was that she had representation of Dobermans from all walks of life. You know, everything that a Doberman can do, those dogs are in her data. Now, one of the other things I've struggled with is 
I don't like comparing apples and oranges, which we kind of had to do a little bit here, where ideally all of the phenotypes or the um, disease risks or uh, death causes that we worked with in our data would have been from the same dogs that we had a raise from, but they weren't. So the data that we had were for the most part de-identified which meant that we didn't know which dog they came from. And so we were left with a, we could see there were very strong groupings in the data, but we didn't at the outset know what those groupings were. So the first job we had to do was figure out who they were. Who are you? What is your group? You know, what, what's happening in that spot there? Who are they? And so, oh, meaning like, is this, are these show dogs? Is, yeah, is this group yeah. representing so show dogs? Yeah, because we could yeah. see that they were like family groups mm -hmm. because they were co located based on their inherited characteristics of the, the markers. Um, but we didn't know who was where and who, where was how. And so, um, Sophie was able to get uh, 45 people to identify their animals and we just used those to identify the groupings so then they weren't used again so they were just used to say this is what this group does who they are and um and then the rest of the analysis was just based then on um we had to narrow in to make those groups more um to be more sure who they were we had to corral them a little bit to make sure that we didn't have too many unknown ones in there. We could only take the ones that were very closely positioned with the ones that we knew about. And then we had a look to see what was going on in the genome in those groups. Okay, so yeah. what did you find? Oh, sorry, go ahead, Sophie. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, um, yeah, so part of the reason, and um, and it's fair to criticize that that's what we had to do, but um, part of the reason is because for various reasons, um, we got the data as a sort of one giant lump from Embark, and they had to be anonymized, de-identified for privacy reasons from them. So to, to get some sort of quote-unquote identification, that's where... Um, we had to recruit owners who were part of the Doberman Diversity Project and comfortable saying, like, this is my dog, this dog has a pedigree, and this is, you know, the gene type, um, or this is my dog, it, I don't know where this dog came from, it was a rescue, or this is my dog that I got from what one might consider a quote-unquote backyard breeder, although I hate that phrase. So um, we, we gave it a much kinder name. <laughs> But so that's why we had to do it that way, because uh, the data that we got in one lump sum was de-identified. So um, that sort of explains why Claire had to do that. And, and, and I, I do want to make a quick shout out that all of this data could not have happened without the participants of the Doberman Diversity Project. So um, I don't consider it my or our my data as much as I do consider it like our project because I do want to give credit to everyone who most everyone purchased the Embark test um, of their own accord and then gave this to us and gave permission so I want to 
shout out to everyone for participating. Citizen science is wonderful. Mm -hmm. And so then the other uh, part of it was that with just the electronic data from the dogs, you're kind of limited in the questions you can ask of the data. Um, but then Robin Nuttall had her um, Doberman Health Survey, which had a significant number of dogs that basically had the same cohorts of dogs because they were the major ones. Uh, represented in those data. So then we could also ask um, more health-related questions of those groups like, um, you know, how long do they live or how uh, are their particular uh, cohort-based differences in disease risk for various things. And um, those data showed us, showed for me, for me actually it was probably one of the better demonstrations of um, the effect of inbreeding depression uh, because it's really clear in Robin's, uh, in figure one from the paper, um, which is all based on the phenotype data that Robin provided, not the genotype data. The survey data, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, very clear that um, you can probably get an extra two years of lifespan by crossing the working bred European dogs with the confirmation bred European dog. And then you can probably get another year or two on top of that by crossing them across continents. So, and the big finding I think from my point of view was that um, purpose has a lot less to do with health, breed purpose, so whether you show or whether you do working things with your dogs or whether you do pet things, then does um, geography in this breed. And the major driver in uh, the geographic aspect was the, was the uh, very likely the breeding policies of the German Kennel Club which did not allow animals back into their breeding program again from outside. So they basically became a closed, what would be a breeding nucleus in a livestock um, breeding program. So all of the genes would flow out from there, but nothing would flow back in. And so that's where all, I think, where all the genetic trends are being driven from essentially yeah so that's such a great visual of all the genes flowing out and nothing flowing in so to give some background the um, dv in germany for quite some time has had a pretty restrictive policy for breeding and um not the not the very most recent because they just changed very recently i think maybe January of this year or next year. But prior to that, their policy was essentially that you needed a certain um, certification before the dog could be bred and the puppies registered in Germany. And if uh, the mother and father didn't already have that certification, then, then that, that dog could not breed and have its puppy, puppies registered. 
So if you think about it like that, if mom and dad do not already have it, there is no way to introduce a new dog into the breeding population in Germany. So they had that for quite some time, and, and I believe it's for a wide variety of reasons that may or may not have any solid um, evidence behind it. It may be tradition. It may be, you know, fear of whatever is being brought in. I'm not sure, but they had that very restrictive breeding policy for quite some time. And it's interesting that you can really see it pan out in the genetic data. But I do believe that either early this year or next year, that policy will change. So the certification is still required, but you no longer need your mother and father of that dog to also have that certification. So therefore, I think you can bring a new dog, get a certification, and introduce that dog into the breeding pool. But all of these ideas like stemmed from the original livestock breeding programs, the 1950s, you know, where that was the way it was done, right? You would have the elite animals that were selected strongly selected at the top and then they would their genetic improvement would flow down through through um, the various tiers of the livestock industry and it's it's just a lot of people who started out in dog breeding were also farmers i guess originally and that's where all of those ideas have kind of come from i think so, um, and i think uh you know I can have a bit of a shout out to my PhD supervisor, a guy called John James, who developed this idea of there being open nucleus breeding programs where you could actually then, in livestock, bring females up into the nucleus from the lower levels to accelerate genetic improvement. Um, selection's kind of a dirty word these days, which I think is going down probably a suboptimal path because I think that um, part of the reason that um, breeds have tolerated these higher levels of inbreeding has been that there has been selection for health applied. Um, hopefully, like breeding away, I wouldn't say purging because clearly that hasn't happened, but breeding away from having high frequencies of deleterious genes. But then I think sometimes things do get stuck. And I think in the Dobermans, there's a good chance that there are a few things that are stuck. And so part of our project was to try and figure out where those stuck things might be. So, well, there's a lot of directions to go from here, but what would you hope would be the outcome of the change in policy in Germany, in the DV, in allowing the, in making it easier to bring dogs back into the German breeding programs? Do you think that will affect yeah. the rest of the populations? Um, well, if they allow it, basically in Europe, they would become more of what we have in America, probably, where um, in America, there's far less restrictions and there's been pretty widespread use of European animals with American, North American animals. So we have kind of like the, the, before we had the data, just experientially, you kind of knew that in America we had like the most diverse mixture of pedigrees and bloodlines because there were far less fewer restrictions. So I think if other countries allow the same, 
um, they'll probably have a population pretty similar to North America, which is good in the immediate term, but animals in North America still suffer very high rates of morbidity and mortality uh, diseases. So it'll be a nice temporary reprieve, but um, we're, we're still here. It's, it's the same animals. So, you know, and that's a more complicated question to answer where we would need, you know, people like you both to help guide us for next steps. You can see from um, Robin's data that um, normal normal dog lifespans are possible in the breed. Um, when you look at the, in the figure one, if you look at the, the dogs that are including um, the US Euro hybrid or the Australian dogs, which are, Australians have uh, tend to import a lot of dogs, so, and we have relatively, well, they're kennel council, so you have to be purebred, but they have, uh, in terms of geography, they have relatively few restrictions on where you can bring your dogs from, except for disease control. Um, but you can see from Sophie's data that the highest levels of diversity are existing in the pet population. So that's really the big untapped resource, I think. So uh, if you want to stay pure breeding, then that pet population, pet population is, um, is the untapped resource for people to use. But it's hard, right? It's hard. You can't just say, do this because, um, people breed for different reasons. And if you're a confirmation breeder, you're very, you're not likely to bring in they're unlikely to take the hit in terms of the things that they do in their day-to-day -day life to increase that diversity. Like there's got to, there's no real incentive there to do it at the end of the day. Yeah. And I, yeah. So that, that's a, that's, that's the problem I think. And I think even like, even within confirmation bred dogs, the European dogs and the American dogs are very different, apparently. The uh, size standards are very different between the FCI and the US um, kennel clubs. The, yeah, the European dogs are a lot bigger, chunkier sort of appearance. Um, they don't, well, in Australia, we don't allow cropping. So then you'd have to start thinking about tails. Whereas in America, you probably don't care so much about tails. Um, just stuff like that, like little things that matter to different groups of people that force them to act in particular ways. So there's no, I don't think it's very easy to say thou shalt do this because um, there are costs involved in every sure i think that's exactly what the functional dog collaborative struggles with right is there's and i certainly recognize that that there's one path that is helpful for genetic diversity and we hope that it's also helpful for health but you're going to take a hit in terms of the phenotype and how do we figure out how to balance that um 
And maybe, as you say, maybe there are some groups who feel that, you know, they don't have a good option for bringing in more diversity and maintaining the phenotype. And to them, the phenotype is so important. But maybe there's other groups for whom the phenotype is less important. So how many how many groups did you identify roughly? And, and what were they? Just so we sort of know what we're talking about. Did you like show, pet, working, different nation, different nations? Yeah, so we had four major cohorts. And then, of course, there are mixes among those that were more difficult to identify. And so we didn't analyze those. Um, the four major cohorts were European show, European working, America's show, and America's what we called informal, which was basically not bred for any particular purpose. And they cluster very differently. You can really see the families very clearly. And then, of course, you have crosses among those where the animals are sort of intermediate genetically between those groups. So we had um, the nice thing about those groups, of course, they're all quite large in the, in both Sophie's data and in Robin's survey, health survey data. Um, we were able to draw some ideas about what's going on in each one and to, you couldn't really map with it, but you could get some clue as to if there were risks that were different, were there areas of fixation that were different that might correspond with those risks and what was going on in those places at a, at a variant level. And I guess, I guess the other thing that bothers me, I hear a lot that um, people want to increase diversity just for the heck of it, like just to, they want to get those variants in there and if there if you have a if you have a breed and there is a very low minor allele frequency it's like a very rare chromosome flooding around the breed people want to bring it back right they say oh bring it back bring it back we want to increase the diversity well what happens if you do that why you've got to ask first why is that rare is it rare because there's something bad in it and it's been selected really heavily against right and so um one of the places we looked at was uh, one of the fixed regions or one of the fixed regions there was there was nowhere in the whole genome where a hundred percent of dogs were homozygous there was no nowhere like that but um there were some places that had very few other chromosomes there and um in one of those places, there was a gene that had deleterious variants in it. And it turned out that the um, most common haplotype had a deleterious variant in it relative to um, what we'd expect a dog to have. But then the rarer haplotype had two deleterious variants in it. So if you brought back the rare one, you're actually adding to the disease risk so in that if you have something like that that's kind of like your dalmatian slc 2a9 hyperuric i'm assuming that's the the uric acid a hyperuric acuria and such gene. Yeah. yeah yeah um in those cases where you can actually see 
Where an outcrossing program, I think, can be really beneficial is where you can identify a place that can be fixed. And like, yes, in like, you could, you could, you can get like a general heterozygosity within the breed by mixing together the different kinds. But at some point, you might be stuck still with the purebred, and at that point, you may want to do an outcross to if there is something that's really high risk and really broken, you could do a directed crossing to bring that back in. And that would probably, I guess in the Dalmatians, they've kind of <laughs> not really accepted it as much as one would hope they would, but you can fix a problem that way. Um, in terms of general longevity, uh, for people who don't require a particular purpose-bred dog, I think, um, Outcrossing is probably a good way to go, but you lose, it depends what people want, you know, you have different, um, people want things for different reasons, so not everything is, we're all different, <laughs> we all want different things. <laughs> I think for sure that's true. So when you're talking about uh, these deleterious alleles, I'm curious, were they, had they been previously identified or were they things that you yourself in the study that you had? connected um so the way we tried to look in between the array data um there do exist i think there were seven or eight dobermans with whole genome sequence in the public domain and we were able to um look at these six regions and look at every letter of the DNA in between to see what was going on there. And um, we didn't, we didn't uh, discover them because they had already been discovered by the people who made the variant call files for the whole genome sequence data in the public domain. But we were the first people that probably looked at them carefully. <laughs> In, in response to a particular, for a reason. So that reason being that this was an area that might be problematic to see what might be in there. So we did that for all of the regions that seem to be fixed um, in more than 90% of the dogs, which is a very arbitrary line to draw because if I made it lower, it would be a lot more places to look at. So there's a, another project there for someone who wants to go down to 80%. <laughs> Yeah. So did you, I'm just, I'm intrigued by the comparison with the Dalmatian outcross. Um, did you feel that you had identified some regions that would benefit from directed outcross? I think it's too early to say, because we don't know if those variants actually have a functional outcome, right? We can see there are variants there, but we don't know if those dogs will, because we had apples and oranges. Because the dogs we had data we weren't for, able to connect the phenotype data. Yeah, we don't know for sure that those variants do anything. So until you so know, this, until you can see right. that the group that has those variants is worse off than the group that doesn't, or you know, you don't know really if it's worth doing anything about it. This will work for the future for other people to do. I say that because I'm but approaching retirement. <laughs> <laughs> but you did have some some specific recommendations. So we talked about that a little bit, right? So we talked about the possibility of 
crossing to the sort of the American pet population and that obviously there are reasons people might not want to do that, but you felt that um, for health reasons, there might be a health benefit to start crossing in that population more. Um, so I think that's not quite accurate in saying that we okay. didn't recommend that. Um, the conclusion was that if that was done, there might be a health benefit. Mm. <laughs> right. So that's different than us saying do that. <laughs> and I think that we've been picked sure. up on that. Right. So people have said that we've said that you should do this. Well, we didn't say you should do that. We just said that this is something that might help if someone. The, the so health survey data suggests that if you do this, then longevity will be increased and the level of heart disease might go down. Um, yeah, and you yeah. had some pretty compelling numbers that you mentioned earlier in this in this talk. So yeah, this, yeah, so those are pretty cool findings. Yeah, so I think it's first time for me. Um, I've been asked for years to show that to show stats on inbreeding depression, um, and I think this analysis does provide quite compelling evidence for inbreeding depression in this breed because you can see so for for your for the people who might not know what that is um so inbreeding depression is a reduction in fitness typically things like litter size and lifespan and health um in this breed litter size i don't think is a problem because <laughs> i often hear of litters of dobermans in the 15s or or so so they're not really a breed that you really want to increase the litter size. Um, but in terms of the health survey data, the health survey data showed clearly that the dogs, particularly around that um, sort of 7 to 11 kind of age range, um, the... European dogs had a much shorter lifespan than the other groups, or all the other groups. If you cross together the European uh, confirmation and European working dogs, you got an elevation, like a, a, a clear elevation in that, in that frame of taking your dogs from living eight years up to maybe 10 years or something. And then if you look at the... British, Australian dogs, which are very likely drawing bloodlines from both Europe and the Americas, um, then they're in that same frame living out, you know, they're, they're much more likely to be alive at 10 and 11 than the uh, European dogs of any kind are. So it's very strong geographic influence which i think is predominantly driven by those breeding policies so those restrictive breeding policies are, are really causing problems sophie is this sorry to neglect you for so long like <laughs> dove into the genetics of it but is this um so does this give you sort of the some of the answers that you were you were looking for or is or or maybe another way of saying this is this 
this give you anything actionable to sort of recommend to the Doberman community that you feel would be useful to them? Well, I share very similar feelings as Claire, where I don't, and even like clinically, I don't like to tell people what to do. I feel it's a little paternalistic to be that way. Um, I like to give them all the evidence because I don't think that there's really a right or wrong answer a lot of the times. Um, there might be answers that are don't make as much sense given the evidence, but you know, it's people's choices. And so I think that what we did here was show some lines of evidence for people to consider. Um, you know, like Claire said, it's pretty clear that we can see the effects of inbreeding depression in Dobermans on longevity. So you can take that for what you will. And, and I think that the Germans have taken it um, and that people have been saying it for quite some time. So I think they have really heard that and have accepted the change that is required, which is a first step. Um, and then I think one thing that Claire mentioned that I like to highlight because it can be controversial is that the pet population in North America is a reservoir of what we would call genetic diversity. And, you know, that, it is what it is. Um, if people would like to use it, that is their choice. If they don't want to use it, again, it's their choice, but it is what it is. And, and it's hard. And I was talking to someone the other day who's in guide, guide and service dog world. So where they have very large breeding colonies, they can often share dogs across breeding colonies. And we were just commiserating. Like it is so challenging if you don't have a colony to really implement these like large scale improvements in dog health and behavior as an N of one human being with, if you're a home breeder, maybe one to three females, you know, how much can you really do? And, you know, I hate to say it, I hate to admit it, but I think probably the change is very minimal um, in mass, if it's just N of one, but maybe you can change enough for yourself and the people that you have influence over and maybe, you know, grassroots efforts. Um, I know that FDC has a big vision to unite all of that. So maybe we just wait for that, but it's hard, right? It's hard if we recognize there's a reservoir, let's say in, in the pet population, but it doesn't align with my immediate goals, then how do I integrate that? I, the answer is I probably won't. Um, and, you know, the answer, intermediate answer could be that in Europe, we um, open up the, the breeding population and, and incorporate new dogs. But again, they're just going to kind of end up where North America is. So, you know, you take that all together and I I don't know if it tells us there's like a right way to go here. I think it just tells us like, you know, this is what we've got. Um, and and it's, it's not horrible, it's not horrible, I guess, but um, it's not great. And we know it's not great. So, 
So what are the actions that we can do to help it be a little less horrible? And, and people do talk about outcrossing, and I'm glad that Claire's touching a little bit about that. I don't have a genetic expertise to give guidance on that. Sorry, my dogs in the background are causing a rocket. <laughs> <laughs> but you know i and i know that question is going to come up so i'm really looking forward to claire's answer to that as kind of like an objective third-party observer just kind of like purely thinking about genetics without any of like my personal biases so i yeah i hadn't really come in with a i hadn't really approached the task with the ideas of giving recommendations of where to go next, because I feel as though at this point it's still a little premature to do so. However, one can always say it's always better to, um, we can see from the data that there is inbreeding depression and that taking some steps to alleviate that might be a good plan. How that's done, it's going to be different for every group. It depends on purpose people are breeding for. And, um, you know, it may be for confirmation breeders. Maybe if you're a European confirmation breeder, Maybe if you don't like the American type, then maybe going to a British or an Australian or a New Zealand or Asian group might be a place to go where you can still capture those um, diversity, uh, the heterozygosity without losing the type that you're interested in breeding. If you're only breeding for... Um, pet dogs, then you can probably make use of the pet population. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm sorry to sound useful, useless, but it's sort of, it's very difficult to, to uh, give an answer because if you just have a broad scale, Jessica would probably advocate for a broad scale outcrossing program. Um, I do think that the I would like to see the kennel clubs open um, because to me if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck it's probably a duck so it's it if if you can bring in a dog that fits the brief even if it has something slightly different in it, that's in my view that's how they all started I don't know why people don't allow that um, but it may be generational state uh, change because all of these things are run by volunteers in their 80s. So it's like it's really difficult <laughs> to get them to change their mind on things. They're very, very strong, passionate feelings in every corner of the dog world. Oh, we love our dogs. Mm -hmm. I think that one of the themes that we've all kept coming back to is that there's different groups of Dobermans and there's different groups of people who have different goals and different needs. And I would, everyone knows that I always advocate for larger scale outcrossing programs, but I also recognize that there's different needs for these different groups. And so I think what I would say is that we might look at 
you know, the, the different national breed clubs as individual groups with mm-hmm. their own approaches. And then we might consider, are there ways in which there are some other groups out there who might have different approaches, but who need some help with organization? So I think, I think it was Sophie who just said, it's so hard when you're a single person with one to three breeding females. That was you, right, Sophie? Mm-hmm. And so how do you how do you look to the future? Do you take that phenotypic hit with the knowledge that there's going to be health benefits to it going forward, but maybe you're only breeding for one or two generations and then you don't actually get to reach your goals? Right. That's That's not something that is reasonable to ask of people. So I think having organizations, having groups that come together with a variety of purposes. So my, my take on it is that we, in each different country, we tend to think of there just being one Doberman breed, um, you know, controlled by that kennel club, uh, that breed club. And maybe we should start thinking of there being different groups in the countries in, within each country and how we, the different groups might breed differently, and then maybe even have gene flow between the groups. Um, I think it could be really interesting to see where that went. And and hopefully right. this paper provides a map to what some of those groups are too. Yeah, I think so. so kind of like grouping them by purpose Yeah, across international organizations. Yeah. I think what the, the big thing that I feel that we have provided is a baseline. This is a state of play. <laughs> this is what's there. I know this is what we see. Um, it can be used for good or evil. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It can, you know, there are there are options there for people. People can see where they might be able to go um, to get some um, improvement in the longevity of their dogs going forward. Um, yeah. The whole longevity thing is an, uh, it's a whole, it's a bit of an issue, I think, because really if, um, if uh, legislation continues the way it has been in Australia and in the US, people will be further and further drilled down to an N of one in their uh, being a, in their breeding program. When you have a kennel that has an N of one, that means that there's no real value in having longevity because you need turnover. So there's, so, and I wonder if there might be that kind of pressure on the population too, that actually from a breeding perspective, when you have limited numbers that you're allowed to keep, if you you don't want to be keeping your dogs to 15, 16 years old unless you have to move them on and there's a lot of societal pressure to not move dogs on as well. So there are all those sort of there are a lot of there are a lot of pressures that people don't talk about. That's what I would say. Yeah, I really do wish we could have something like the, not a colony, but kind of that system that the working dog world has, because, you know, in their world, a quote unquote failure is a dog that becomes a really nice pet, 
and there's a huge wait list for people who want those pets. And it's just such a nice way to to test breedings to to and they do a really good job of you know for every female getting several litters out of a female evaluating each puppy kind of evaluating the genetic merit and and then if the dog doesn't make it they're a great pet if the dog makes it awesome they become a working animal it's just such a great system that I just don't know how we could ever recreate as private citizens you can't because but if it, we that, could it would be very ideal their system though the the system that they have in place the average cost is like twenty thousand dollars per dog like it's not it's not really achievable for your average person mm-hmm. to accomplish that and the other thing is too I work with service organizations as well and they they're not problem free either they have relatively high levels of inbreeding as well. And they have the same problem where, where do you go? Like you've got these highly selected purpose-bred animals. Um, you know, they have their own, they're, they're not problem-free animals. They are more and more, I think, coming together into breeding cooperatives where they can mm-hmm. trade dogs across different colonies in order to try to address that. Yeah, but um, then you end up with um, the high-performing dogs being used broadly and you end up with like a popular side in the whole other <laughs> We have and, there and there again, science. right? I think, yeah, and I think there again, it's very, it's advantageous to have a breeding coordinator looking at the whole population and mm-hmm. saying, right, and so when you have a breeding cooperative and you have people really working together, you can say, well, this dog may be great, but we're only going to make, you know, he's only going to sire this many litters. Mm-hmm. But there again, when you have individuals, um, there's there's no one person willing to take the hit and say, oh, that dog has sired a lot of litters. So I guess maybe I shouldn't use him. It's much harder when you're an individual. Mm-hmm. But I, think yeah. also, I, think, I mean, I'll say it again. Organization is is so key to all of this. I think the other thing with popular sires though, that people have to remember um, is that some Sires may be used a lot, but not to leave breeding progeny. So that in certain countries, all the uh, the majority of animals are spayed or neutered. Um, not all, because Europe doesn't do spaying and neutering at all. And there's actually a big push to not, as you guys know as veterinarians, a bigger pro- uh, push to not have a, um, spay and neuter, even in countries that have traditionally used a lot. So. Um, what happens in the future is anyone's guess, but yeah, I think I think you could have commercial breeding enterprises that use um, sires to breed a lot of puppies, but then they probably don't breed many that go on to be sires themselves. I don't know if if it's always like mm-hmm. a one for one kind of thing that they have six hundred puppies and and another one has ten puppies that. It's a one in 10 across the board. I don't know how that works in practice. Right. Yeah, the idea of a breeding coordinator is so interesting. Um, But that was actually one of the problems with Germany is they require a breed warden to like sign off on all of their breeding populations. So it's, it's such a good idea, but definitely can be used for good or evil. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this could all be used for good or evil. <laughs> right. 
Well, so while we're on this topic, I had a Patreon question um, from one of the podcast supporters, Cynthia Kelly. Um, and she's asking about a specific project that is trying to bring people together. Um, it's called the Doberman Preservation Project, and it's attempting to increase genetic diversity and long-term health outcomes. So they're crossing in different breeds and then breeding back to Dobermans. And I know we've touched on a lot of the aspects of that already, but I was wondering if you two could sort of package up what you had said before in response to this very specific outcross program, or if there maybe was something new that you had to say that hadn't we hadn't said yet. Becky, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, my perspective is, is what it has been, which is that we are not here to tell people what to do. Um, as you know, you and Claire have both discussed before, if one of the goals is to, in one fell swoop, bring in heterozygosity to, to the population, it would be an effective way to do that. However, you know, things can be used for good and evil. And one of my concerns is that when there's repeated back crossing to a highly inbred breed, and we've seen this a couple of times because people have sent us their DNA results for their dogs who are like 80 to 90% Doberman, and their COI is right back at 40-50%. So if you do back crossing to a highly inbred purebred population, and you're kind of just doing it indiscriminately and not really thinking about what you're doing, I would caution that we might just end up with like a, a 40% inbred Doberman looking dog, but who carries very similar disease risks if we don't manage that new influx of diversity strategically. And that's why I refrain from giving advice because I don't think that I have the knowledge to guide those decisions. Whereas I think if there was a breeding director named Jessica or Claire overseeing all of this, then I would be a little bit more confident. But as it stands from what I understand, and I've seen enough of these 90, 80% Doberman looking dogs who have very high levels of inbreeding that I'm just, I'm not confident that that is a current solution to our current issue. Um, but I, I do think that we have an issue in the breed. What the exact solution is, I'm not, I'm just not sure. And I'm, I'm waiting patiently, looking at the evidence, hoping you and Claire will continue to guide us. You're, you're a data collector. You're not a, I am. Uh, not yeah. a recommendation provider. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I, I think I, I'd support what Sophie just said. Um, you know, three back crosses and you're 86% of purebred again. So I think um, unless it's done on a continual basis and there's some way of maintaining type, then um, the scenario that Sophie painted is probably what the outcome would be. Um, I guess for me, um, I think complex disorders are complex, but if we can identify some of the major players, and there's just been a publication the last few weeks, um, 
that has identified a major risk locus in the European cohort? The two novel loci, yeah, yeah. I think it was in September of this year. Yeah, so if you can use selection, like the, if you can use selection um, to identify these major players in disease risk and disorder risk to alleviate those. Um, and then if there are uh, a loci that are problematic in the breed so that, you know, you have the case I was mentioning before, which I can't remember the gene was now, but um, where you have an area which is largely homozygous in a lot of the Dobermans and the alternatives are not great <laughs> within the breed, then outcrossing could, could really give a benefit there, I think, definitely, because you could ensure that that region at least is kept when they come back in and then that problem is sort of solvable even within your 40% inbred dogs. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's different. Every person's going to need a different thing, I think. Um, but I do think that so, there are and possibilities I wanna, there. Yeah, and I want to make sure that no one thinks that we're saying that the Doberman Preservation Project um, is a bad project, right? We're no, not, we're not saying that at all. Um, so, but I think what we've all sort of agreed on is that a project like that in order to be successful, um, needs to be doing multiple outcrosses that are sort of scattered across a large population rather than a small number of outcrosses, which are then repeatedly bred back. Um, and that, again, that takes size and organization. And I don't think mm -hmm. any of us know exactly what this project is doing, how large it is, how thoughtfully they're looking at uh, back crossing. Um, but I think what we're saying is that there's a lot of complexity there to think about, and that it's certainly a, a big a big task. Mm, I guess I guess the 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 one thing that astonished me in the data, and it's probably a little bright spark in a way is that even though your individual dogs are all quite inbred, as a population there was very, very little of the genome that was fixed, less than 1%. So um, there are options there. It's just a question of how many options there are. So I think even at, even at 80% of dogs being homozygous in the same place, there was only like, 3% of the genome or 4% of the genome that was fixed at that level. So the vast majority of the genome, there is still variation in the breed. Mm -hmm. um, it's just a question of um, if that alternative to what the norm is, is desirable, like if it's better or worse than what you've got in the majority of the dogs. And I think a lot of it was within the pet informal population. So I think it's like the basic question that we have to offer breeders and owners is, are you open to or want to use a pet bred or informally bred Doberman for those reasons? Or do you prefer using this outcrossed version of a Doberman? Um, 
for those reasons. And I, I don't know. But yeah, I would say your summary was pretty what I'm feeling, Jessica, is that I think that if one were to do it, you would you would kind of need to have that colony system and have this multiple outcross strategic guided effort to maintain that diversity that you've introduced rather than this point um, introduction with multiple back crossing and now we're not that different from where we started but maybe if it's strategic for like one particular region of the genome like Claire mentioned maybe it's worth it but I don't think that we can argue that it's worth it right now for such a complex disease with multiple loci of interest on different chromosomes so yeah it's so interesting to me to wonder how Doberman's how that this how DCM is so prevalent in this population and yet so hard to pin down to one to one spot. I mean, it's not one spot, it's right? Not. And and it's not unique to Doberman's. We've talked about some of the other breeds that have similar issues where mm-hmm. you know you see the one disease that is so common in that breed and yet you cannot find one or two spots that are yeah, yeah. that are responsible. Yeah, Lienberger polyneuropathy. Cerebellar abiotrophy and kelpie. <laughs> they all have like. We can go on. <laughs> there's like some. Uh, it seems to be. Yeah, it makes me think that there's a straw on the camel's back thing where you've got a certain number of risk, major risk loci, and a certain number of those might be fixed the wrong way. Now, those are the ones you want to fix. You've got to find those ones. That's, that's why I think. That's where I think the value was in what we were looking at. Although. It may not be that they're going to be fixed at 90%, like maybe they're only fixed at 70%, right? So it's just, it's going to take time to figure that stuff out. And those things are quite, you can't really map those the way that they've just found those two risk loci, because if they're not really variable, you're not really seeing... You're not really seeing it in the genotypes. You're not really going to get the stats. The, stat, the statistics are not going to make it pop for you. So, um, yeah. And the other thing is the problem that I mentioned earlier where you can have variants that hide in those homozygous, like regions that look homozygous, have got deleterious variants segregating in them, but you can't see them with the arrays. Oh, we just need to hold genome sequence all of yeah. them, clearly. Yeah, yeah. That, so- Claire. That's a whole, that's a whole <laughs> other thing. That's a whole other yeah. world of pain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but yes, yes. So I think it's it's challenging. Complex diseases are complex. You know, it's a complex disease, and it's very unlikely to be one or two things. And it may be that, um, in some sense, you know, phenotypic selection may be the best thing, right? Because phenotypic selection doesn't care if it can see the variants in the genome or not. It just cares if the variants are there. So. I think if, yeah, that's the first, don't breed, I get the, the rule of thumb, don't breed from sick dogs if you can avoid it, right? So that's the starting, that's the starting place. Yeah, it's it's hard to to wait though until your bitch is eight to make sure she's not going to get it, yeah. right? And then you breed yeah. her for the first yeah. time. So, but that's, However, just, you know. but that's where estimated breeding values can help. Exactly. Thank there you. you go. There you go. <laughs> there you go. There's the plug. Yeah, Thank because, you. Yeah, because you just need... Um, the estimated breeding values, you don't need to see the individual. 
all oh, you need is just got so happy all of its relatives but the trouble with yep. but the trouble with estimated breeding values is if you have a litter of puppies in front of you unless you've got genomic breeding values which may or may not work depending on what we've, we've got that problem where they're hiding in the homozygous regions or not but if the problem with estimated breeding values based on phenotype is that when you get a litter of puppies they all have the same value they don't have the, the whole litter because it's based on what the parents are mm -hmm. all you can't you've still got to select the puppies as individuals and the problem with all dog breeding is that you've got to select the puppies by the time they're eight weeks old or you know and that's why people select so hard on things you can see on the outside like color and markings and fur and confirmation because you can observe that on an eight week old puppy but you can't observe dcm and you can't observe other there are other things you just have no clue behavior for a little bit you can but, um yeah yeah that's that's the biggest limitation i think is yeah is that's that, our is next the age goal. at which we select for breeding yeah it's also complex but definitely that is our like pie in the sky goal is to create some sort of ebv for dcm or longevity maybe um but that was ultimately always still is our pie in the sky goal is to build some sort of ebv so that people can functionally use risk assessments and breed well you can do now a, you can i was toying with the idea of genomic breeding values based on um cohort based disease risk it would be better if you had like individual dog based disease risk but even here you could you could give a risk score based on what we've observed in in the data of that paper um but the problem is that you'd probably make the um the best dogs a bit worse and the good dogs a bit uh, like the bad dogs better and you'd end up in the middle somewhere probably mm. so without having the individual phenotype that then it's risky does make it hard to sustain yeah yeah um so for those of you who don't know what ebvs are i'm not going to go into it but you look up the um probably the second part of the two-part <laughs> podcast interview with eldon dr eldon layton um he went in great detail into ebvs in that for those of you who are curious about it um so maybe a good place to wrap up then is is looking to the future sophie do you see that the doberman diversity project would be able to start working on generating ebvs at some point or how how in in reaches that um so that is still my personal goal is that we can create that because i think it's so desperately needed um for individual breeders and for population improvement we like claire mentioned several times we do need owners to provide us with the phenotypic data that we need to build this so and since dcm is such a heterogeneous disease um we really need like 24-hour holters echocardiogram reports as much detail as possible from their cardiologist and we need follow-ups, so it, not just like a six-year-old with a clean halter and echo, but ideally um, data from a dog until it has the disease or data from a dog until it dies. And, and that takes a few years, but we have people who entered the project several years ago, so I'm hopeful that we'll capture some of that. And we started doing that 
um, it's, it's a big effort. Um, I would like to say we're close. Not quite. <laughs> it's sort of like you have all of the people identified and you have everyone you need in the same room, but we just don't have quite all of the data yet. So it's, it's ready to get started when we can get all of that data. And that's the tricky thing and hard thing about citizen science is mobilizing everyone, recruiting everyone. Um, so we have the logistics worked out. We just need owner supplied data and a massive amount of it. So it's the mobilization I mean, recruitment. The piece. logistics are hard, but yeah. um, okay. So if you're listening to this and you want to help improve the breed, it sounds like the easiest way to do it is if you have a Doberman mm -hmm. to get involved with reporting um, their health and getting in touch with the Doberman Diversity Project to do that. Yep. Thank you both so much. I really appreciate this. Thank you so much. Thanks for asking us, Jess. Hey, friends. Some of you have asked how to support the podcast, so we've set up a Patreon page for it. For a small monthly pledge, you help us pay for producing this podcast, and in exchange, you get a chance to suggest questions for podcast guests, and you get early access to podcast episodes. To find out more, go to patreon.com slash functionalbreeding. You could also help promote the podcast through subscribing to it through the podcast app of your choice and by leaving favorable reviews. If you're interested in supporting the Functional Dog Collaborative more generally, or finding ways to get involved, go to the functionalbreeding.org website and click the support link. Thanks to everyone who has helped out. We could not do this without you. Thanks so much for listening. The Functional Breeding Podcast is a product of the Functional Dog Collaborative and was produced by Attila Merton. Come join us at the Functional Breeding Facebook group to talk about this episode or about responsible breeding practices in general. To learn more about the FDC, check out the functionalbreeding.org website. Enjoy your dogs. Mm -hmm.